Hey, it's Micah from On The Media here. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about my visit to Brooke's house earlier this week. I was trying to solve a mystery. This is the studio. This is where the magic happens. That's right. It is obviously appallingly untidy, (laughs) something that... Thankfully, the listeners cannot see but can only imagine. And so this is where you sit, where you both do the interviews and crochet the hats. And crochet the hats, yeah, absolutely. As you may know, we've given out many of these colorful hats over the years to listeners like you. I wanted to know how and why Brooke became obsessed with making them. Well, during my parents' first bankruptcy, (laughs) we moved from Long Island to rural Vermont, and I didn't know anybody So I thought I would volunteer. Somebody told me there was this really nice lady named Fanny who was in her 90s, very lonely. Her family wasn't nearby. So I started visiting her, and she taught me how to crochet. And I did it for, you know, a couple of years, and then 20, 30 40 years passed, and I didn't do it, and I... Surely something triggered the revival. (sighs) What could it have been? It really was a way to keep myself calm and settled and focused during things like editorial meetings. But we know this really isn't about the hats. Come on, you're going right for the transition. (laughs) Well. I mean, for me, it's kind of absurd that we're an award-winning national public radio show. You've been doing this over 20 years. We basically have a a glorified bake sale. (laughs) To, like, actually keep the show on. You know, are you recording that? Yes. Yeah, it is. it is. It's a glorified bake sale. But seriously, we really do rely on your contributions to keep on the media independent and on the air. I'll be blunt. If you want to keep listening to this show, you got to do your part. Go to onthemedia.org slash donate or text the letters OTM to 70101. And if you become a sustaining member today you'll be entered to win your very own Brooke hat. We have like 20 to give away this time, so your odds of winning one when you become a sustaining member are pretty decent. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Psychologically, we may be done with the pandemic, but like a Hollywood money grab of unwanted sequels, the pandemic is not done with us. While coronavirus cases have receded in the U.S., they are soaring right now in the U.K., and scientists are keeping a close eye on a brand new variant. It's called XE, and already more than 600 cases have been identified in the UK. While the World Health Organization and the UK Health Security Agency says it's too early to know for certain, XE could be 10% more transmissible than the BA2 Omicron variant, the dominant strain here in the US. 
Here, the CDC isn't even monitoring XE, not even dubbing it a variant of concern. Considered recombinant, XE is actually a blend of BA2 and BA1, Omicron classic. This sort of fusion isn't unusual for the coronavirus, according to epidemiologists. We've actually had XA, XB, XC. We talked about the Delta Cron, which was Delta plus Omicron. Now these are two Omicrons together. Now it may be slightly more uh, transmissible, but so far it's not a public health concern. So to help make sense of COVID's continuing evolution, we are revisiting our Breaking News Consumer's Handbook Variant Edition, originally written at the beginning of the Omicron surge. The scientific community is now pretty well prepared to assess variants. When I spoke to Atlantic staff writer Catherine J. Wu in December, I asked her if the media were ready too. I will start and end with the good because it's always nice to sandwich (laughs) the bad. But no, I mean, I think it's been extraordinary to see how quickly both the scientific and the science journalism community have responded to this news. And, you know, I've seen many of my colleagues really work hard to cover this responsibly, inject nuance wherever they can. And I have so, so, so appreciated whenever journalists have been unafraid to say, we don't know. It's not always the most satisfying to read and certainly Mm -hmm. not the most satisfying satisfying thing to put in a headline, but it is the reality. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, I think where (laughs) the coverage has gone wrong is we've kind of veered away from what we do and don't know. It's okay to sort of put forth, here's what scientists are discussing, here's what's possible, here's what we'll be looking for, but there's another tier of that, what we can call wild speculation. (laughs) So give me some specifics in the coverage that have made you cringe or at least, you know, crinkle your eyebrows. I was a little frustrated to see some folks being quoted saying this is a whole new pandemic. We're starting over from scratch. You know, the vaccines could be rendered obsolete. Those are really, really strong statements with really scary implications for a public that is exhausted from two years of crisis and uncertainty and heading into winter when we know more people are gathering. And it really does no one any good. But is it wrong? Arguably, some of that, I think, is wrong. I think when we say something like, you know, the vaccines will be rendered totally obsolete or useless, it really does make it sound like we are putting people back at square one. That's absolutely not going to be the case. This new variant, Omicron, it is a new variant, but it's not a completely new virus. It's not a pigeon transforming into a tiger. It's a pigeon Mm -hmm. that's maybe grown a mustache. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It might be a little (laughs) harder to recognize, but that does not mean that we're completely invalidating everything we've put in place so far. A way to frame this a little more responsibly is to say, yes, we have a new variant that might erode some of the effectiveness of our vaccines, but not erase it. So the notion that this could be a whole new thing is wrong. Is that partly based on the fact that the word mutation itself is so scary? So if it's 30 mutations, it's 30 times scarier? Yeah, the word mutant and the word mutation, these are two terms that certainly are very loaded. They have sort of cultural and colloquial meanings, but in science, a mutation is sort of akin to a typo. Think about, you know, bodies of text. Sometimes typos are not a big deal. The word is still completely recognizable. Sometimes it makes the word harder to understand or changes the word's meaning completely, but in much the same way, mutations in biology can be 
totally inconsequential. They can benefit the virus or they can actively harm the virus. And until we really do those studies, we don't know what those 50-some mutations are actually going to do for Omicron. You've said there are three key metrics we need to gauge in the face of a new variant. And those are the things that need to be preeminent in the coverage. Could you walk us through what we know about those three metrics, starting with number one, how quickly the variant spreads? This is a pretty important one. Viruses don't really want anything, but if they did want something, it would be to spread and to spread fast. And so this is what scientists are watching for right now. They're watching to see, you know, in most places in the world, Delta is the predominant variant. If Omicron is a better spreader than Delta, we can expect it to outcompete Delta. Even within individual people, we'll see this variant copying itself faster and just basically outpacing its competitor. That could cause problems if it has other traits that cause us issues. The next one is, is it capable of causing more serious disease than what we've previously encountered? This is a really difficult trait to pin down because the severity of disease that a variant causes is not just about the virus. It's also about us. Disease is an interaction between host and pathogen. Mm -hmm. And even if a pathogen is kind of wilier and packs a bigger punch, if it meets a really resilient host or a really young and feisty host, maybe it won't hurt that person so much. So when scientists are trying to study this, they also have to think about, okay, are the populations that these variants are infecting, are they comparable? You know, is one vaccinated? Is one younger? Does one have more access to treatments? Are hospitals super full in this area? You know, you can think of all the the sort of confounding variables that make those comparisons just so difficult to make. And it also depends on what we're worried about, right? Death and serious disease are not the only metrics. We're also thinking about long COVID and the other debilitating symptoms that people can experience. So that metric, it's such a thorny question, but it's also Mm -hmm. something that scientists are trying to pay attention Mm -hmm. to right now. The final one is whether, quote, it might be able to circumvent the immune protection left behind by past SARS-CoV-2 infections or COVID-19 vaccines, or whether it could evade immune-focused treatments such as monoclonal antibodies. This is some of the data that will reach us the soonest because, you know, vaccine makers and independent researchers are already taking blood from vaccinated and previously infected individuals and seeing if the antibodies in there can still block Omicron from getting inside of cells in petri dishes in the lab. That's not the entire picture of immune response, but it is a strong indication of one large component. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some predictions already trickling out and it comes back to, you know, our pigeon with a mustache idea. You know, once a pigeon dons a disguise like that, it is going to be a little bit less recognizable to certain members of the immune system. I think there's room for optimism here because certain parts of our immune system are way more resilient and flexible to mutation. And I think in my mind, no way that we are going to plummet to zero protection. The coverage often references the WHO labeling Omicron as, quote, a variant of concern, like the FBI would call someone a person of concern. (laughs) That title is, you know concerning, but it's also vague. Could you explain what it means? 
So I think the first thing to know is that the WHO has four designations for variants, and a variant of concern is kind of tier three out of four. Nothing has yet actually ascended to the highest level, which is a variant of high consequence. But it is important to keep in mind that Omicron has moved past being just a variant under monitoring, which is the first one, and a variant of interest, which is tier two. A variant of concern is what the WHO designates a variant for which there is evidence or high likelihood that it's either going to be more transmissible, more deadly, or more evasive of vaccines or therapeutics. So they have enough data to at least come to the conclusion that it'll be one of those three. It's interesting. This is actually a contested point. There are some experts out there that say maybe we shouldn't have labeled this a variant of concern quite yet because we don't have the data 100% confirming that. We have high suspicion all around based on the information we have about Omicron's mutations, but we haven't actually seen the evidence. So, oh, it's, it's tough. I understand why the WHO may have done this. It certainly put a label on this variant that made people react quickly. And maybe this variant will be demoted. That is totally possible. Maybe it will not be the big deal that some worry it could be. Where would the earnest layperson find out about those things that we really want to know, especially those big metrics about transmissibility, severity, and vaccine resistance? Where do we go to make sure we have it up to the minute and in context? This data is going to come out piecemeal, and it's going to take a lot of hard work and attention to synthesize that data quickly. We're going to learn about some of those traits much faster than others. I think the World Health Organization and the CDC have already both done a really great job of keeping the public up to date. The World Health Organization has been issuing regular updates on Omicron, as you know, well as other variants when necessary. And they've already laid out, you know, these are the three metrics we're monitoring. Again, that's transmissibility, disease severity, and immune evasiveness. And I think they're going to be carefully categorizing their updates so that they tell the public, here is the metric that this new update could affect. Here's where you should sort of file this information. It's not always going to be that clear cut, but it's actually been, I think, really nice to see so far how closely people have been paying attention. So when do you think we'll begin to get a clear idea about transmissibility, severity, vaccine resistance? I think we are going to start to see hints of those answers within a couple weeks. And I think one of the clearest timelines to think about is the vaccine effectiveness question, because we kind of know how those experiments have to go. Scientists right now are either growing up this virus in the lab or engineering little versions of other viruses to look like Omicron, and then testing to see whether those viruses can be blocked by antibodies in petri dishes in the lab so that they won't infect cells anymore. That's going to give us our first sense of how well vaccinated people or COVID-recovered people are going to fend off Omicron. And we'll really start to see that, I think, within a couple weeks. We're also really just waiting on a lot of epidemiologic data. We're waiting to see who has caught this variant and how they're faring and whether they were vaccinated, how sick they're getting, where the virus is geographically, and how quickly it's moving, those are all going to come out a little bit piecemeal. And while we wait for science to flush this all out, 
and for the politicians to take purposeful action. What should we do to keep ourselves informed the best we can and to act? First thing is to remain calm. (laughs) And it is okay to turn off your computer, turn off your phone, take a deep breath, go for a walk, come back and try and process it anew. We are in a holding pattern. It's okay to, to take a quick break, take care of yourself, and reassess what is currently in your pandemic toolkit. Do you have masks around? How long has it been since you got your first round of vaccines? Is there anyone in your life who is unvaccinated? One more huge perk of making sure that your vaccines are up to date and that people around you are protected is this starves the virus of opportunities to do us more harm. Right now we're dealing with a pigeon with a mustache. That does not preclude the possibility of a pigeon appearing in a top hat or a monocle further down the road. Let's keep our (laughs) pigeons pigeons and deal with them the best way we know how. I thought you were going to say pigeon with a machete. (laughs) Uh, Catherine Wu, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me again. Catherine J. Wu is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers science. Thanks for listening to the Midweek Podcast. This week on the show, we'll be talking all about the long tale of pandemics past and present. See you Friday. I'm Brooke Gladstone. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.